Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we're continuing our series, Jesus Goes Global Beyond Jerusalem, with a message called Conversion, Part 2. So turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 9, verses 10 to 19, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Conversion is that moment when a man or woman, as Jesus put it, is born from above or born again. Jesus said that no one can enter the kingdom of God unless one is born of the Spirit. That's because it's the Spirit of God who first draws us to Christ. And it's also the Spirit who takes from us our unreceptive stone hearts and replaces them with hearts receptive to God. The conversion of Saul of Tarsus is one of the most dramatic conversion stories in history. It is dramatic because Saul met Jesus and in an instant, his entire worldview crumbled. His former life was left in ruins. He had been so confident that Jesus was a fraud and that you know all the stories of the resurrection were to be discounted. He believed there would be no miracles until the Messiah appeared at the end of the age. His worldview was set and he was prepared to do all that he could do to end the growth of the Christian church. But as he was traveling from Jerusalem to Damascus in Syria, Remember, he was going to hunt Christians, arrest them, bring them back bound to Jerusalem. And as he's going, believing that he was serving God by being a persecutor, remember, as he's going, his worldview completely set. Then suddenly and unexpectedly, there's a bright light and he falls to the ground. And Jesus, that is the risen Jesus, identifies himself to Saul. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And that's when Saul's worldview falls apart. He's led now blind by the hand until he's brought to a house in Damascus. He's blind for the next three days as he stays in that house. And that's where we pick up our story today. So I'm reading Acts 9, 10 to 15. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Now, before we pick up some important themes about the nature of conversion, let's pay attention to some of the historical details. We met a man named Ananias back in Acts chapter 5. He was a man along with his wife Sapphira who deceived the church and who died before the Lord. Now, obviously, this here is not the same man. But in those days, among Jewish people, the name Ananias was a very common name. And so we really don't know a great deal about this man. But we do know that whereas he is Jewish, he does not appear to be one of the refugees who have fled Saul's persecution from Jerusalem. See, we know that from verse 13. He's protesting. Lord, he says, I have heard about this man, and I've heard what he did to the believers in Jerusalem. So clearly Ananias had heard about Saul from Jerusalem believers, that means he's not one of them. And that brings us to a very interesting point. Ananias is not one of the refugees from Jerusalem. Instead, he's been hearing from the refugees about this man. And that tells me that 
Ananias had no doubt heard about Christ from the fleeing Christians from Jerusalem, and most likely then, through their witness, he had come to faith in Christ, while, of course, he's living in a Jewish community in Damascus where the refugees actually arrived. And that gives us some insight into the mentality of Jerusalem Christians. They were accustomed to sharing their faith, and they were quite accustomed to leading others to faith in Christ. Ananias was probably just such a convert. In that sense, his conversion seems so much like ours. You see, he didn't meet Jesus on the road to Damascus. He met Jesus as a faithful Christian, shared Jesus with him. No doubt the Holy Spirit arrested Ananias' heart, and by the grace of God, he'd surrendered his life to Christ. That's who he is, a Christian so much like us, and we can almost recognize ourselves in him. He's heard the gospel and he's believed, and no doubt, he's also interested in winning others to faith in Christ. And furthermore, I'm assuming that the Holy Spirit has given Ananias the gift of healing. He's the one who's going to pray for Saul to be healed of his blindness. But now it gets tricky. See, verse 10 says that the Lord spoke to him in a vision. And please notice our passage does not say God spoke to him. Rather, it says the Lord did. And I make mention of that simply because whenever in the New Testament we read the word Lord, well, that's a reference to Jesus himself. And although this vision should catch our attention, Jesus has come to Ananias in a vision. The response of Ananias, well, that should also catch our attention. Notice how quickly the words come out of his mouth. Here I am, Lord, he says. It's his signal to Jesus that whatever Jesus wants, Ananias as a servant of Christ is determined to obey the moment his master speaks. It's a great example, an example that should characterize every single believer. Speak, Lord for your servant hears. Well, very well. And as we know, it suddenly gets a little more difficult to obey than Ananias had imagined. Go to Straight Street. And it would have been, I think, Straight Street, unlike so many of the winding streets in that city. Well, this one must have been straight right through the center of the city. At any rate, on that street, go to the house of Judas. And we have to assume that this is another Jewish believer in Damascus who must have come to faith in Jesus through the witness of the persecuted Jerusalem Christians. There you'll find a man named Saul of Tarsus. I can't help but smile at the irony here. I mean, here's Saul now blind and he's fasting and praying in the home of a man who was undoubtedly one to Christ because of the persecution that he had instigated in Jerusalem. And we've got to reflect on the wisdom of God here. How strange are the ways of God? And furthermore, and here we're going to have to imagine the scene just a bit, Judas has been won to Christ by the people who have told him how cruel was this man named Saul. And what does this Christian man do when he finds the distressed, humiliated, and humbled persecutor of the church? Well, he takes him in. That's what he does. He answers the call of Jesus to love even his own persecutors. It's in little lines like this. He's staying in the house of a man named Judas that were introduced to the ethic or the lifestyle and the love that was clearly there in the early Christian community. And then Jesus tells Ananias, I'm, I'm arranging for you to meet Saul of Tarsus. He's praying and I've shown him a vision and you'll come to his house that you might lay your hands on him, pray for him to be healed, and he's instantly going to get his sight back. And after all, you've been given the gift of healing, so now use it on this man. And Ananias' mind must have been reeling. If he's blind, 
Maybe that's a good thing. I mean, last thing I want to do is pray for him to be healed. Let him remain as he is. Notice again, verse 13 says, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. Then to verse 14. Here he has authority to bind all who call on your name. That is to say, even though many of the Christians in Damascus had nothing to do with the persecution that broke out, in Jerusalem, they were subject to arrest and losing their property in Damascus, going to prison in Jerusalem. It was terrifying, and that's what this man represents. And you have to imagine all the followers of Jesus wondering when this man was going to show up and hearing of how utterly ruthless and lacking in conscience and how merciless he was. Now we come to the key verse of the passage, verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. And stop there. Saul of Tarsus, my chosen instrument. It's a remarkable statement. Let me ask a key question. When exactly did Saul become God's chosen instrument to carry the gospel to the Gentiles, the Jews, and to world leaders? Did Jesus make the decision about him as he observed Saul, you know, blind and fasting and repenting now for three days? seeing his genuinely repentant behavior, and seeing his willingness to make amends, is that when Jesus said he's exhibiting all the behavior of a man who can be counted on for a great mission? And unfortunately, and I say unfortunately, that's how many of us would think of it. I say it's unfortunate to think this way because when we do, we rob God of his glory. And I say that because a great many of us put God in the category of an eternal responder rather than the prime mover. That is to say, many think only that once God sees us taking steps that are appropriate, he then responds by granting us a great mission. And from that perspective, the glory goes to us who are so sincere, so resolute, so committed to Christ. See, I say this attitude is unfortunate because those who hold that attitude never come to terms with the work of God. Instead, they're so enamored with their own work, their their own choices and their own commitments. See, this attitude of focusing on how faithful we've been really does, at least in our minds, rob God of his glory. Do you want to hear answers to some of the most requested questions Back to the Bible Canada receives from our listeners? Well, this May, Back to the Bible Canada will be airing a special four-episode video series called Ask Dr. John, responding to the questions on your heart and mind, questions about salvation, the church, finding strength in difficult days, and so much more. And you can take the opportunity to participate by sending your questions to info at backtothebible.ca or just giving us a call at 1-800-663-2425. You can access this upcoming series on Back to the Bible Canada's YouTube channel or online at backtothebible.ca. And to ensure you never miss a video episode from Dr. John, subscribe to Back to the Bible Canada's YouTube channel. For more information, or to support the ministry, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. We have to imagine that when Saul of Tarsus, later as he was known as the Apostle Paul, that he would never have forgotten his conversion story, and in truth, he never did. 
The initial experience with Jesus not only stayed with him, but inspired by the Holy Spirit, he's able to look back at his initial encounter with Christ and understand its significance both for himself, but also for us. So I'm going to read Galatians 1, 13 to 15, and there we'll find Paul describing his conversion to the Galatian Christians. He says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, so don't pass that by, he set me apart before I was born. And then after being set apart before he was born, God called him, that is, on the Damascus road. So let me put it directly. Why did Jesus call Paul on the road to Damascus? And the reason, says Paul, because he set me apart before I was born. See, in that sense, Paul is not very different from Jeremiah the prophet. And you might remember his call to ministry. It's recorded in Jeremiah 1, 4 to 5. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And so Jeremiah, like Paul, had the sense that all glory went to God. See, God in his infinite wisdom and in his meticulous sovereignty had already decided both Jeremiah's and Paul's ministry before they came into being. And that's an undeniable truth. And it's led a great many of us to contemplate whether or not the conversion of Saul and his calling, as well as the calling of Jeremiah, were in some senses unique. And of course, that is also undeniable because Saul was God's chosen instrument to move the gospel of Jesus beyond the Jewish boundaries and open the door for the whole world. It was Saul of Tarsus who would become Paul the Apostle, who would more clearly than anyone else show that salvation came by grace alone through the agency of faith alone. Circumcision, dietary restrictions, those matters of the law which related only to an exclusive time in Israel's history was not to be applied to the Gentiles. Paul would explain that later in Galatians 5 verse 6 where he would say, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Faith was defined as repentance of sin, trust in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. This alone resulted in the forgiveness of sins, the hope of eternal life, and inclusion into God's family. Paul would see this matter with greater clarity than anyone else, and on that basis, he would even push Peter to recognize the global implications of what that meant. See, we can say that without the Apostle Paul, the majority of the Gentiles would never have heard. And so we should be able to look at his conversion and say something very unique was being done here. Ananias was being told that this man, unlike any other man in history, was the man God had chosen to perform this mighty work. All glory is to God. He chose Paul. But given that Paul's mission is unique to Paul, should we then conclude that the words, God set me apart before I was born, that those words are meant for Paul alone? Should any Christians after Paul apply any part of that to his or her own life? Well, now, Paul, not only by the inspiration of the Spirit, was able to understand his own conversion. See, he also understood all conversions. So listen to what he said as a universal truth for all believers 
It's recorded in Ephesians 1, 3-4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. So did you notice that then many of the words Paul uses of his own very unique conversion story, it's now applied to the conversion story of everyone who calls Jesus Savior and Lord. See, in Galatians, Paul says he was set apart before he was born. And then in Ephesians, speaking about all believers, he says, God has chosen us before the foundations of the world. So when it comes to the unique specifics of God's calling, which gets you know, included in the conversion story where we remember that Paul was called to be the missionary to the Gentiles even before he was born. And in the case of all other believers, at least as he explains it in Ephesians, he says, where we're all called that we should be holy and blameless before him. See, and I point that out because I have no doubt that God ordains how each believer should be fruitful in his kingdom. But God also has ordained that each believer should live holy and blameless lives. Of course, each believer knows the reality of, you know, fighting with the flesh and knows the reality of times in which we fail to be holy and the importance of repentance daily, regularly, and the renewal of our calling. But every believer also knows that by the end, we will be presented holy and blameless before the throne. We know this because God ordained it that it should be the case before time began. It's a glorious truth, and it gives us great confidence. Well, let's get back to our text. We ended in Acts 9.15, where Ananias was told that Paul would carry the name of Jesus before Gentiles and kings and the people of Israel. So follow me now to the next verse, which is verse 16. Jesus then tells Ananias, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Notice that Jesus gives Ananias only partial information about the difficulty of the mission that lies before this man. Jesus himself will help Paul understand it in a far greater way. Well, let's continue to read to the end of the section. I'm reading now Acts 9:17 to 19. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Notice that Ananias has learned his lesson. He's not going to question Jesus' commands to him. Yeah, he, he's afraid of Saul of Tarsus, but he also believed that when Jesus claims his man, that man now belongs to Jesus. I noticed that our text tells us that Ananias prayed not just that Paul would be healed, but that he'd be filled with the Holy Spirit. In his letters, Paul would later describe his conversion as going from darkness into light. And here, no doubt, that's how Christ had designed that this wonderful truth would always be remembered by Saul or by Paul. Scales of darkness would fall from his eyes, and then, with the Holy Spirit filling him, he sees the light. And isn't that so with all of us? You know, I remember some years ago speaking with a Christian man who was telling me that he was thinking of joining the Freemasons. See, I told him that during the initiation ritual of the Freemasons that he would have to say the words, I come from darkness into light. And I asked him, can you as a Christian 
who has found Jesus as Savior and Lord, who has received the Holy Spirit, say anything but this. Christ alone is the light of the world. You see, Paul taught us to say that. And it's true for everyone who is found by Christ. Well, the next thing we notice about Paul is is very simple. Our text says he rose and was baptized, and we can't overstress that. You know, it's become customary, at least in, you know, some Christian circles, for baptism to follow some years after conversion. And if that's you, learn this lesson. Be baptized immediately. And a little word here for all Christians who make a profession of faith in Christ but have not been baptized. What in the world are you waiting for? Since Christ commands it, go do it. And let's take a brief moment to summarize. What have we learned? Well, first, we've learned that none of us came to Christ because we had the good sense or the good morals to do so. We came to Christ because of the mercy of God. Second, we learn that when conversion occurs, God breaks our rebellious hearts and he crushes our previous worldview. Conversion is always a radical break with the past. And finally, we learn that every one of us need to think about the miracle and the mystery of our conversion more deeply. At some level, when telling our story of how we heard the gospel and when we surrendered our lives and said yes to Jesus, we need also to remember that in the eternal counsel and the eternal wisdom of God, before eternal ages in the past, God had chosen to have mercy on us. Paul's conversion and ours, although so different and yet so much the same, how mysterious and how wondrous. John, thanks so much for the message today. A a quick question, though, you know, when it comes to Paul's conversion, how do we wrap our heads around the conversion of those who might believe have lived lives that are completely unredeemable? Yeah, you know, I'm going to say, Ben, that's every single one of us. I do believe that we have not yet grasped the depth of our own sin. And had we done that, we would see that what Paul speaks about in Ephesians 2, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, uh, that we were all unredeemable because dead is dead. And, you know, dead people respond to nothing. And we don't respond to the voice of God unless he intervenes. So, you know, even though the story of, you know, Saul of Tarsus is so very different than all of our stories, uh, yet nonetheless, it does have this in common that he was dead in sin, so were we. God intervened, Jesus intervened, and he did with us as well. That's the wonderful news. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series Beyond Jerusalem right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. In the spring of 2022, we have an exciting ministry vacation event designed just for you. It's our Back to the Bible Canada Israel experience. Travel to the Holy Land and experience some of the locations where Jesus, Paul, David, and so many other biblical figures walked. Visit the Jordan River, the Garden of Gethsemane, Capernaum, and David's Royal Palace. Worship at the Garden Tomb and go sailing on the Sea of Galilee. Enjoy daily Bible teaching from Dr. Neufeld and be encouraged as we share time with Laugh Again's Phil Calloway and special musical guests. Don't miss this wonderful opportunity to visit the Holy Land. You'll be inspired and refreshed 
in your walk with Jesus. For more information, visit backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425.